Hello! Welcome to Why Not Both. My name is Pam Schaefer, and I'm a musician and therapist in Los Angeles. Why Not Both is all about how our multiple passions inform our identity. And this season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine and produced by Laura Studeris. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and come spend time with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, and that is both on Instagram and on Twitter. For this episode, we were joined by fellow podcaster, musician, and writer Andre Henry. I hope you enjoy our interview. Thank you so much for chatting with me on Why Not Both. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I was looking at your website right before we were chatting and I was like, gosh, you do a lot of things, <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly why I wanted to interview you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. What, uh, what have you been up to? I guess looking at, now I'm, I'm still on your website. Um, <laughs> it's like, yay, it goes directly to your band camp. So I can link to that. I was like, what have you been up to? I guess this week, like, what would you want to talk to people about? Um, what am I up to this week? Uh, this week is actually a little bit slower in that, um, I'm, I'm organizing with Black Lives Matter Pasadena. Mm -hmm. I'm finishing up some new music and I think that's it, but it's a little bit slower because I think a lot of the momentum of this latest wave of the movement is kind of waning. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, this past month has been very intense in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really good to see all these people out in the streets um, and protesting systemic racism and, People are educating themselves about what the police actually do right now, which is nice. That's yes. really nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was good dramatic understatement. <laughs> You're like, that's nice. We like that. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, it's, I appreciate it, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes, I was gonna say I was looking at when you'd published your podcast, and I noticed I was like, oh, you know, it kind of looks like you took a pause in May. Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I would assume that was because you were quite busy doing other things. Yeah, we, um, with my podcast, Hope and Heart Pills, we uh, are taking a bit of a break because we we wanted to fit or we wanted to start thinking about doing seasons and kind of following kind of like how when you're watching TV, like your show is on and then it takes a break and, mm -hmm. you know, and then you come back. So we decided to do that too, because you, as you know, doing a podcast is a lot of work. <laughs> oh my goodness. I did not anticipate that when I started. Um, yeah. I was like, gosh, I get to talk to people. How interesting. And now I'm like, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Yeah, it's a lot of work. So we want to build in these times for rest and reflection as we, so we can continue to be strategic about the conversations that we have. Right. So we're right. gearing up for, we're doing season two in August or next month now, since we're in July now. Oh yeah, it's technically July. Yeah, yeah, it's July. I think today is the first day of July. So our, our, Season two for Hope and Hard Pills will be in August. Mm -hmm. Also transitioning the leadership of the podcast to other people on my team because oh, wow. I have a lot of brilliant people working with me and much of that is behind the scenes work. So uh, Hope and Hard Pills is about to get its own website, its own social media, and then the rest of the team will take... Uh, turns interviewing folks and hosting the podcast so it's super exciting that's awesome and having I was just thinking about what you just said like having collaborators that you trust yeah and <laughs> that you can be like yes take this idea and run with it yeah. <laughs> go forth <laughs> yeah, and I have so many ideas and that I want to do that holding on to anything too tightly 
makes it difficult for me to move, you know? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm realizing that I have a lot of ideas and I like to build things. I like to start things. I love to gather people and I'm good at doing those things. But then like after a while, I'm like, okay, well, I really want to do this other thing that is also really big. Yep. Um, or not big, but involved, right? It, it takes a lot to accomplish and there's no way I can do all these things at once. So it's right. really nice to have folks that not only do I trust, but I admire them. I admire the folks that are collaborating with me. And I think that they have so much to offer and so much insight to share. So it was like a little bit difficult to let uh, com- like complete creative control over some, some of the things these things go. Mm-hmm. You know, people love to call their projects their babies, right? And so that right. means they're really protective. And I thought about that the other day and I was like, yeah, but you know, babies grow up. And, <laughs> you know, babies grow up and they become independent and, you know, they, they take become their life. own people. Exactly, right? So, like, so when I thought about that, you know, because I almost called the podcast my baby. And I was like, well, I've been in some very unhealthy organizations where the founder couldn't let go of creative control of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And I used to sit at my desk and be like, well, if this is, if they want to be so protective over this, then they need to scale down so that mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. them and they can rule over their little project <laughs> with complete authoritarian control. And it can be exactly how they want it. Right? <laughs> it should just be you and your laptop running this entire online publication. But if you want for it to be bigger and bigger than you as a founder, mm-hmm. then you have to let people on your team have creative control. And so I've been really trying to be cognizant of that and to get out of the way of the brilliant people that have been brought into my life <laughs> that are perfectly capable of taking the show that I don't want to do till I retire to something, you know, and yes. make it into something else, right? Like <laughs> that's I think that what you're speaking to is so relevant to people who do enjoy, I don't know what to call it other than like chronically creating, mm-hmm. where you just keep coming up with new ideas. But even like the thesis of the podcast, Why Not Both, is predicated on the idea of like, there might be some reason why you wouldn't do both or all three Mm -hmm. or all four or all 10, like, because your time is finite. Um, And at some point you have to let go of certain things and knowing how and when to do that. Because if you are micromanaging, like you said, otherwise you'd end up being this one person in front of a laptop being like, okay, I'm going to do every single little thing. Yeah. Um, but that might not actually serve your idea the best, ironically. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the thing can die, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because you don't have time to do it. Right. Or it can continue to live with people who have fresh vision and the resources to do it. So I've been trying to really watch myself for that kind of stuff because I've, I've worked in organizations where, okay, like the founder's still there and they really want for it to be a certain way, but they don't seem to really know what that is. Either. Like they've lost mm-hmm. the vision for the thing. They know mm-hmm. what they don't want it to be because they're right. very good at shooting down ideas. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not coming up with any great ideas themselves really. Right, right. I've been trying to watch myself as, as a leader to you know, try to avoid that. It's something I'm like really... I, I want to say it's it's something I'm afraid of. Like I, I don't want to become one of these cautionary tales, one of these people that I've, you know, hated to work with or, or been exhausted to work under. Yes. Well, and it's it. It reminds me of that whole thing of you know, when you're a kid and your parents do something that you don't like, you're like, oh, I'll never do that when I grow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that occasionally you find yourself doing it, and you're like, oh no. <laughs> I've right. become the person that reminds everyone to go to the bathroom before they leave the house. <laughs> like, right. Like, what have I become? Right, exactly. Yeah. Am I my old boss? <laughs> and being cognizant of that in creative spaces and also activist spaces as well, because 
I don't know about what you're experiencing, but I'm delighted to see so many people younger than myself as an elder millennial. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want to be like, oh, it's all on the youth to solve all the problems that we've caused. But I do find a lot of inspiration because they simply are younger and have different points of view. But I'm like, yes, this is awesome. Please tell me more. I will will do whatever it is. Well, I think we learned so much about democracy by participating in protest movements. Mm -hmm. Like we learn how to actually participate in a democracy by participating in protest movements because leadership is shared and it takes a lot of people to pull these things off. You know, there's a lot of listening involved, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of creativity and it just doesn't go as well when we're not being democratic with one another, you know? Right. So it's so good for us to participate in these, um, yeah, it's so, it's so good for us to participate in these movements because it's when, when they're being led and organized well, we learn that everybody has something to offer, right? Yes. Everybody has something worth sharing everyone. Well, I say everyone. We all know I'm being a, a little bit loose. We're being generous. <laughs> but very generous with most everyone. <laughs> yeah, but but lots of people coming with something to share. And it's interesting that we started talking about leadership at first because we often hear people in social movements and around social change say, "Well, well, who's that great leader that's gonna you know rise up like Dr. King and you know tell us what to do or mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. imagination, give us a dream." And I'm like, y'all, come on now. Like, you know, like read the history. Dr. King didn't desegregate America by himself. Like, right. it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, <laughs> Sorry, just imagine him being like, okay, my schedule today, it's like morning tea, journaling, desegregate America. Yeah, yeah. Afternoon tea. <laughs> yeah. You know, So it's like, no, there were lots of people involved, you know, lots of people, lots of leaders involved. And it's always been us learning how to work well together, incorporate other people's ideas um, into what we're doing. And actually one of the criticisms of Dr. King and the way that Dr. King organized came from Ella Baker, who founded the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who talked about how the hierarchical leadership of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was led by Dr. King, mm-hmm. was a liability. And we saw that when Dr. King was murdered, the SCLC kind of falls out of its place of prominence in the civil rights movement, civil rights struggle, because mm-hmm. it was organized you know, very much around the charisma of a very great and capable leader, but also that was its downfall too, it seems. Mm. Yeah, thinking about that, it's almost people do want to be inspired by individuals, but it's it's a double-edged sword in a way because then it has to be then the tipping point for them to take action almost regardless of a charismatic leader or not. Right, right, right. Yeah, we, we are, we're enamored, I think, or we have been in the past enamored with these ideas of leadership being like, charismatic individuals that kind of take up a lot of space and in some ways kind of dominate others right and mm-hmm. i mean look at our president right <laughs> like, i was gonna say i feel like he's like the strange orange elephant in the room right now like donald trump was elected because there's some people who really like that idea of having like a dominant personality, right? Right. A strong man that's gonna like fix all of our problems. Um, And I think that that younger generations are moving away from that, which I think is good. Right. (laughs) I've been growing so much myself, like just allowing folks in, because I had a very toxic and unhealthy like work experience a couple of years ago. And so now that I'm leading my own team with Hope and Hard Pills, Mm -hmm. a lot of it is me looking at that and going, okay, wait, not going to, not going to repeat that behavior. Not going to copy that behavior. Right. But it's been so liberating to learn to, it's been so liberating to learn to lean in to letting other people lead 
in these ways mm-hmm. and which also brings me to music because I learned a lot of this in art making especially the writing process. So I can talk about music. I've made music my whole life. I love making music. I think every, I mean, I consider everything that I do to be an outflow of music for me. I mean, my, my life motto and the thing people know me most for saying is it doesn't have to be this way, which is from one of my songs. Mm. But one thing that I wasn't very good at when I was younger in creativity was collaborating with others. Interesting. When I, when I say good, I mean, I didn't do it. I just, it was, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just didn't. Right? Oh, I relate to that very much as a classically trained and very shy musician. People be like, do you want to jam? And I'm like, do you want to do literally anything else? Yeah, right, right. So for me, songwriting has always been my jam and I always wrote by myself. It was a very solitary activity. And I think the writing process, not songwriting, but just writing articles and Mm -hmm. things like that. When I decided that I wanted to write more in that way, I came back to the writing process that we learned in high school, you know? And one thing I learned is that first off, the first thing you write is your rough draft. That's not the thing. And I learned about this phrase called killing your darlings in writing, which Mm. I'm familiar with, but I mean, basically it's, it's the things that you really are proud of about what you just wrote. You need to be prepared to let them go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But through the writing process, I came back to music and kind of everything else in life, thinking about it through the lens of the writing process and realizing that, um, realizing that sometimes you do have to kill your darlings. And in order to know what those things are, you have to listen to other people, other people who are reading your writing, giving you Mm -hmm. feedback, and you have to not be defensive and not take that personally to say, well, I'm not a good writer if someone doesn't think that the thing that I cherish so much, you know, needs to be a part of the thing. Brought me back to music in that way too, of like, okay, well, keep an open mind. People make suggestions about some melody, some chord progression, some lyric, keep an open mind and try it because we're all in process. And these things also apply when we're pursuing social change. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. as we're leading, we can't take things personally like that as leaders when people have suggestions. Right. They, they contradict what we have to say or they think that your plan or strategy, you know, may not be the best way to go. Like, and sometimes we have to be able to let things go. There's actually a study, I can't remember who did it, but it's a 2014 study that talked about this connection between art making and social change and talked about how in like when you get groups of people together to create art together, even if they're not skilled, especially if the bars of entry are low, mm-hmm. that people actually do learn or they exercise democratic skills and muscles in making art together. Huh. So, yeah, you know, and I, I see that now, like in a collaborative session on music, like I said, like someone might have an idea and say, um, it sounds like it needs something here or it doesn't need that thing. And you can be very defensive about it and say, well, this is my song and this is how it's going to go. Right, right. <laughs> or you can be open and you might come up with something that you'd never imagined, but something you love even more. And that's also like where I kind of come back to the thing that I said about like organizations where it's like, hey, if you want this organization to be really small, then be a dictator, you know? (laughs) Can be an organization of one. Yeah, you know, like if you want to organize that way, you know, but if you want for this to be something that is bigger than you and outlasts you, then you're gonna need to be open to others. I see that as we're pursuing social change, as we're organizing and great organizers do that. I've watched some really great organizers over the years in the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And I've seen them like just, they go on, they set up in a park or something and, you know, have an open mic, you know, so that people can come up and share their feelings and their ideas. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they organize the youth in their neighborhood so that the youth can make presentations about what they're going through. And the thing that they're actually doing when they do that is they're actually empowering these people. Right. One of the most like frightening things for people to do is to speak in public and they're creating space to safely do so and to share their ideas and to affirm them, letting them know 
your ideas about your city actually matter. You get to participate in this process. This is a collaborative process. And I don't know, I've just kind of gone on a tangent about all of this, but I just, I'm passionate about it and it makes me excited. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited about seeing these things happen in our world in this collaborative way. And you spoke to something that really stood out to me, which is like the issue of not taking things personally and kind of decentering yourself so that actually you can be a better collaborator and a better mm -hmm. activist. Mm -hmm. That what you're talking about so much speaks to holding space for other people as opposed to necessarily imposing your ideas, which then conversely actually does end up propagating the movement that you say you're supporting like it's kind of it's this weird dichotomy that you're speaking to where it's like in order to empower people you can't just go in and say well these are my ideas and this is how you should do it yeah, yeah, you can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't you do can't. that it doesn't work it doesn't work and this is the thing okay so if you want for it to be small right you want to change something about america if you want to make sure that change doesn't ever happen then make sure that you come up with your vision all by yourself and you just try to tell people this is what we're gonna do yes that's not how that works <laughs> you know? like, the other thing is that you can't manage a national change by yourself no right? you you don't even know like if you live in los angeles you don't know what needs to happen in jasper alabama and no. by the time you figure it out, like there's something falling apart in Charleston, South Carolina. You need people in all these different places to be able to agree on the same values, but then to organize in the way that suits their uh, locale and their specific situation. That's yeah, how movements grow. I was going to say, and also to kind of decenter yourself, like, mm -hmm to make it not about you and that like your expression of activism may in fact look very different than someone else's. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, like, I don't know if you've experienced this, but on social media, obviously people have been posting a lot more, but yeah. like the way I was raised, like I was raised in Jewish culture, that part of that is just like tikkun olam and tzedakah. Like you always yes. are working to improve the world and you're always donating. And so, I will be vocal about like things that other people can do, like petitions they can sign, people they can write to in the legislature, things like that. Yep. But I don't post every time I donate something because that that would be very weird. Yes. <laughs> That'd be really strange. Yes. And there's so many different roles to play. There's so many different positions to play. And I find, see, we got to get over this thing where like people are constantly criticizing each other for the work that they're doing, you know? And it's like, sure, we need to refine the work. So it's fine for us to give constructive feedback to each other, but there's just too much activism that like people are looking at each other like, well, you're not really doing the work. You're not really doing the work, the, the work TM. Like, <laughs> well, what? <laughs> Yo, what is the work that we speak of? And also like, while we're on it, Activism is such a loaded word and activists being such a, a loaded title that I think some people aspire to mm. when at the end of the day, like, it's not like an identity that we need to adopt really like that's not that's not the work. I mean, if you want to identify as an activist, fine, that's great. But I think that's what's much more important is what 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 change do we want to see and what do we need to get there right and so often for folks who are maybe more left-leaning um i would say um i think that sometimes because the changes that we want to see are so daunting and organizing to achieve that change can be so challenging we settle for uh purity mm. so we settle for like self-righteousness and so now i'm better than you because while you say that you care about the environment i still see you using straws <laughs> your own metal disposal ones i'm such a better activist than you right and like this 
this pharisaical competition to see who is like you said sedekah which i know means righteousness right so like yeah who is who is more righteous than than the other like we play these self-righteousness games yeah really like yeah. You could like forget about you know your title and whether or not you're participating in the work tm um <laughs> and just like actually like do the strategic work build the power that we need to create change it almost reminds me of like activist olympics um mm. in the same way of like oppression olympics and also the idea of i was reading an article about how to judge morality and that in a way conservative judgment often hinges on purity but mm. now that's happening also within liberal judgment and i found that rhetorical crossover really fascinating that there's something about humans that really want things to be like pure impure good or bad yes mm -hmm. um absolutely right no exactly like are you i think this is like what, what we talk about when we get into talking about um cancellation yeah and um i think that obviously there needs to be accountability for harm right yes and there is also like there's power in withdrawing our collective consent from institutions and organizations and public leaders who depend on that consent in order to to keep causing harm that's powerful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then there is then there's this other thing that says well you know if you if you have a problematic idea about this thing then you know we're done with you now, sometimes people's ideas are actually trash, like, yeah. <laughs> like, some, like some people's ideas are trash. Like if you think, if you think that trans people shouldn't exist, your ideas are trash. Yeah, your ideas are trash. You know? and, and you know, like if you're just gonna, you know, spew that hate, that's hatred, right? Like yeah. that's something different than having a bad idea. I mean, although I can't tell you where the line between those things are right now, but I, I do right. feel like that's It's like, does your idea harm people? Is like, you know, there's, I, I saw a meme about, you know, that arguing about a difference of opinion is kind of like, are you in the pineapple on pizza is good or bad camp as opposed right. to like, are trans people people? <clears throat> exactly. Very different things. Very right? different. But when we get into cancellation, sometimes I think that we are disposing of people because of disagreement sometimes mm. and sometimes we're disposing of people for things that they've done in the past and just because something's past doesn't mean that it's excusable or that it's even forgivable but we also i think have to leave room for people to grow to evolve to change to develop i mean sometimes i say i'm not sure if i'm a christian but then what i'm about to say makes reminds me that like i think it's uh, i definitely am still influenced by, mm -hmm. by the teachings of jesus in this way of thinking that like i'm just not interested in living in a world without redemption for people mm -hmm. i think that redemption is very important um i think it's important for everyone especially i mean there are people who have done heinous things right like i get it like and I'm not, I'm not excusing them at all, but I am saying that people do unconscionable things and then they have to go on living too. Right. And they often have to go on living with the guilt of what they've done. And sometimes that guilt is punishment enough for them. Um, I also don't think that punishment is the same as justice. So um, I think that it kind of feeds into a retributive impulse for justice in our society mm. that ultimately contradicts the kind of world that many of us say that we want to build. So right now, many of us are talking about defunding the police, abolishing prisons and mm -hmm. whatnot. And the basis of that is that we know that <clears throat> policing and prisons don't do what we say that they're gonna do. Right. Um, prisons are cancel, are cancel culture. <laughs> <laughs> they are that's an you know? excellent way of putting that because it's not 
Well, what you're saying to me at least speaks to the idea of like a punishment instead of a consequence, like a consequence would be something that springs naturally as a result of your actions, as opposed to punishment, something that's like constructed around your actions. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also, it's not the same as accountability, right? Like in, when we're thinking about justice, we want to think about how do we repair the harm that was done, right? sometimes the harm is not repairable Mm -hmm. Um, but that also doesn't necessarily mean that nothing can be done either but we are we we have an eye toward how can we write what has been wrong sometimes writing what has been wrong means that we have to change the system so that that kind of thing doesn't happen again right sometimes writing the wrong I think might involve um rehabilitating this person who caused harm in some way so that that person doesn't go on and cause that kind of harm harm. again. Yeah, yeah. And so the contradiction that I'm speaking of is that we say that we want, we say that we want a world where public safety is not exactly the same thing as violence, right? Because we know that the violence does not do what we say it's going to do. The violence actually doesn't keep us safe. Um, I'm reading the ending, I'm reading the end of policing right now. Mm. And they talk about how the author talks about how uh, crime management is actually a very small part of police work. And that many police officers even talk about how their day to day is actually pretty boring, you know, Mm. so we know that the violence is actually not keeping us safe. Right. If if police spend most of their time trying to or responding to like, you know, or giving out traffic tickets and responding to crimes that have already happened and all that kind of stuff, then that means that the violence that police actually do in our neighborhoods is like, they bring that violence to the neighborhood, right? Right. It's reactive. Like, exactly. Right. And so we say that we, we say that we want a world without this violence, but then when somebody causes harm, we say, send them to prison. Right. But we have to make up our mind, right? Right. Is there another way to manage this society? Or do we just cancel people who cause harm? Um, And that's that those questions are not easily answered. (laughs) You know, like, how do you do this? Well, I don't have all the answers on that. But luckily, again, communal, right? Like, I'm not the only person to talk to about this. <laughs> Luckily, we have Angela Davis. Right? Thankfully, we have other people to talk right, to. Exactly, and others who can help us. But these are things that we have to wrestle with when we talk about these things. Um, yeah, well, and, and looking at other at other countries that have police who are not armed. Yep. And it's and, like, well, what do they do? What what systems in their society might you know like looking at like thinking about Iceland where I was recently mm-hmm. they have such low crime because there's really not a lot of impetus for crime mm, exactly and, and so it's like if you create a situation where it's disadvantageous to commit a crime because you already it, it would be kind of like you know it would be like why are you punching yourself like you already have everything you need what are you doing (laughs) and so (laughs) yeah like people who have their basic needs met don't feel compelled to steal no um you know if you if you decriminalize you know certain certain substances that are illegal right now like like marijuana is illegal in some places right right you decriminalize marijuana, then you're not spending any more money on, you know, keeping people on long sentences in prison just because they couldn't pay the bail right. for simple possession of marijuana. You know, like crime, <laughs> another way to reduce crime is to stop calling so many things crimes. <laughs> that's, that's, that's one way to do it you know yeah there's a lot of things that like because there are things that yes you do need to protect people from like bodily harm and things like that but there's many things that are kind of low-key not crimes um like it's not a crime you know like it's it's not a crime apparently you know for white teenagers to smoke marijuana in their neighborhoods exactly exactly you're not you're not hearing about like all these you know white weed heads (laughs) 
filling up American <laughs> prisons because we're just not arresting them. Exactly. At the same, at the I was same like, rate. Right literally now. every Jewish kid who went to sleepaway camp would be in prison right now. <laughs> like, like yeah pretty much <laughs> so yeah we have to think about these things and i think that we started talking about this because we started talking about purity and casual cancel culture and stuff like that and i i think that we do have to trace these things down and i do think that i do really believe that you know our our ideas about justice our ideas about punishment are played out at many levels in society and you can see it on you can see that same kind of seed I think kind of in Twitter exchanges and oh my gosh yeah and in you know the the killing of or sorry the the incarceration rates of of folks or the way that we treat the prison industrial complex rather Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're, we're depending on we're we're depending on the violence we say that we're against, you know? Oof. I was like that, <laughs> that, that hit. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> wow. Yep. That's, that's a paradox right there. That it's like, why don't we try to stop all this violence with violence? Yeah. And we need to get down to the root of that. I think in our interpersonal relationships where, you know, when people cause harm, maybe plan A is not, well, they should experience harm too, but maybe we should ask, what were the conditions that made this harm possible? Mm. And now how do we work together to change those conditions? And also knowing that sometimes, you know, if people are causing harm, that you can draw a boundary around yourself. Like, hey, we've talked about this a few times and you seem like you're having a hard time not doing this thing that's harming me. Absolutely. So I'm going to remove myself from the situation, but like, you can deal with that. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not yeah. going to punish you. I'm not going to do something terrible to you. I'm not going to write about you on Twitter, but it's like, you seem to have trouble not harming me. So, you know, and make it more about that as opposed to coming at them with like, oh, I see you're harming me. Well, time for me to do that to you too. Mm, right. Exactly. And I love that. I love that you said that. Like, so sometimes I think that when we talk about this, on every, on any level, right? When we talk about on the societal level, what what are we going to do with all the rapists and the murderers if we abolish the prisons, right? And we're not saying that people who commit heinous um, acts, uh, like yeah, like people who people who harm people in these ways should be just you know free to roam the streets and continue doing that. You know, we're saying that there have to be some other ways. We have to draw some, other, we have to find a different way to draw boundaries right. around these things. And I think it's also true in our personal lives where uh, when we talk about, so I'm basically talking about abolition, being an abolitionist and something that I'm, I, I'm growing in, right? Like I just realized, mm-hmm. I think I just got here this year where I was like, no, if everything that I've known for years right now, that the the dynamics, the relational dynamics of slave era America are still alive. Um, and I think we saw this in the murder of Ahmaud Arbery mm-hmm. uh, with these two men who, you know, they saw him running through the neighborhood and treated him like a fugitive slave. Yeah. Um, if those relational dynamics are there and the institution institutional dynamics are still there through the prison industrial complex and policing, then what else could we be right now but abolitionists, right? You say, if you lived during the time of slavery, you wouldn't have been one of those slaveholders. Well, here's 2020 is your chance to prove it. Here's your chance. Um, (laughs) And I, I think that's what we're talking about right now is that we're talking about abolition. And I read an essay by Patrice Cullors, and I think that's why I'm tying it to the personal so much because Patrice Cullors in her essay about um, abolition, it's in one of Harvard's publications. I can't remember if it's the Business Review or something like that, but if you Google Mm -hmm. Patrice Cullors Abolition Harvard, it'll come up. It'll pop up. She talked about abolition and she's she's a prison abolitionist, but she Mm -hmm. talked about abolition in these very personal exchanges, these very personal um, situations. I think that we do have to draw it all the way down there. So in the same way, on the personal level, we, we say, well, we don't respond to harm by, by harming, 
but we also don't respond to harm by saying, you know, you know, here I am, hit me with your bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like you give someone a few goes and then it's kind of like, well, it turns into, oh, what's that? There's a cliche about that, like hurt me once, like shame on you, like hurt me twice, shame on me. There's some, there's some sort of aphorism about that, about like once you give someone enough chances to hurt you, you're like, well, I kind of saw that one coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that what you're saying about systemic change that starts on an individual level and even giving people the opportunity to change, it sparked back in my mind what you said about even your own process of working on music, that something in you changed. That yeah. you were like, oh, I can collaborate with other people and listen to them. And then that then kind of globally changed everything else you're interacting with. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we need that space. I mean, there are things that I said about race and racism, like in my 20s or when I was, yeah, that I would be mortified, you know, <laughs> to, be, to be judged by what I said when I knew less, right? Like, yeah. I just didn't, there was a bunch that I didn't know, you know? And I don't want for that to be the define, I don't want that to be the thing that defines me. I don't think any of us want to be defined by our failures. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's courage to say, I don't know, or I need more information, or I'm not yeah. sure, or I had thought something else in the past, but now I know differently. Like there's courage in saying, yeah, that was not the way. Um, and I was mistaken. I was acting on the information I had at the time, and I have yeah. more information now. <laughs> like, because <laughs> um, yeah, I I was just like, yeah, I I feel you on that. <laughs> I would not want to be judged from young me not knowing as much as I know now. And I'm sure that in you know years coming, I'll I'll know even more. That seems to be how this trajectory works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the thing that is concerning about America is uh, just how deeply ingrained in our imagination these things are, right? That these things are keeping us safe. Mm -hmm. And I asked someone the other day, I'm like, okay, so wait, just help me understand. Like, how many times do you wake up in the morning and on the, you know, the, the morning news or in your Facebook feed, there's some story about the police like stopping an evil genius last night just before they blew up the city. You know what I mean? Like, you know that that's not happening, right? And there's another thing just to be asking folks who are live in more affluent areas, especially if white, you know, more majority white um, affluent areas they don't have encounters with the police all that often, right? Like mm -hmm. the police are mm -hmm. not necessarily trolling. Generally, the police are not patrolling neighborhoods like that. The police have a much more, uh, have a much larger pre presence in communities of color, in black communities where mm -hmm. we interact with police generally often, right? It goes back to, at least in my mind, what you're saying to decentering your own experiences and lowering your own defenses to hear someone else's experience. So when people say that the police are keeping us safe or like without, without police and prisons, there would be chaos, then you have to ask some serious questions about what you believe to be orderly. Because mm. you, know you know that they're not in your neighborhood. Right. And you know, so you know where they are. <laughs> there in the community yeah. of color and you know you know what they're doing there too you know that they're you know that they're beating people up on on the other side of the highway or the other side of the train tracks or mm -hmm. the outside of town wherever it is you know that's what they're doing so you're you gotta be careful because you gotta be careful not to be saying that you know public safety depends on violence against black people right I that that you don't feel safe unless and in the back of your mind, you know, somewhere out there, a policeman has his knee on a black man's neck, you know. Um, that's the thing that concerns me about America is that, that it seems in some ways 
that like um some afro pessimist scholars have written that um that the psychological well-being of non-black people depends on black death mm. what you said about order spoke to that of right the people need to think about what to them is considered order and why yep absolutely yeah I'm so glad that you're talking about these things. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, thank you for speaking to these things because coming from, you know, coming from a very different perspective when you were saying about like things that had mortified you uh, potentially earlier, that was certainly my experience because I didn't, I didn't understand how to listen to others experience and that, in a way, pretending that it didn't exist was doing people a disservice. Like I remember growing up really, you know, in LA, obviously, but surrounded by people of different races, but of similar socioeconomic class. And so to me, it when I was a really little kid, it didn't register as making a tangible difference and not understanding that and then learning more and being like, oh, I'm actually really invalidating someone's experience if right. I'm saying that it doesn't make a difference because it only looks like it doesn't make a difference from my perspective. Right. Um, and having that shift as a teenager and understanding that, that like, as a kid, I'm, I'm like, I don't know, did I, I might've just not had that like theory of mind to be able to kind of get that. And I think that that's why, like, especially now it's really important to speak out about these things because even if people may at first feel defensive, what you just said might point out to people that they didn't, they didn't know to even explore their idea of what order looks like. Like they didn't right. know that that would be a jumping off point even. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many of the, the givens in our society are um, unexamined, right? Like we, we've only known a world with these institutions. Right. <clears throat> And we've already been given a story about them, right? Oh, yes. And we haven't had a reason to. But, and I think, like, it's so important to consider what you just said about our location, right? Like, the idea of the friendly neighborhood police officer, well, that dissolved for me when I was, like, in second grade or something like that, you know? I was yeah. walking to school. It was my first time walking to school, and I... I felt a bit insecure about the route, even though it was a straight line from my house to the school, but it was a mile. And I didn't know that it would take you about 20 minutes to walk I was going to say, and you're small, you're in second grade. Right. So, you know, imagine being eight years old. 20 minutes is a long time to walk for an eight-year-old. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I was walking for a while and I felt lost. <laughs> like, oh. I, like, I know that it's this way, but you know, I didn't realize it was going to take this long. So I stopped to ask an officer. And I remember the way that the officer looked at me like, why are you bothering me? You know, like, now, I had like, in my my Fisher Price, my Fisher Price set community, there was a little police officer in there with a smile on his face. And that made me think that's what police officers were like. But when I first mm -hmm. met a police officer on duty as a child, to say, hey, I'm lost can you direct me to all good elementary school? Mm. He did not respond to me with care. He responded very dismissively, indignantly, you know, yeah. and kind of waved me off. Wow. And so location is, is so important when we talk about knowledge, right? Because if you never had that experience, you know, or, you know, even as children, right? Like if you asked, if you asked me, what are police officers like, right? Yeah. Now, as a child, if you asked me as a child, what are police officers like? Then I would at the very least as a child have to reconcile those two images, right? Right. Like I would have to reconcile that like, I've heard that police keep us safe and they're friendly police officers, but then I met a police officer and he was not very friendly and I didn't really feel safe around him. And so right. it would at least be mixed, right? It would be conflicted. You'd be <laughs> yeah, like, wait, yeah. but I saw this thing, but then this other thing happened. Yeah. You know, some people like to say it, it's a thick understanding, right? Like it's, it, it's complex, right? 
Yeah, and to have to reconcile that as a kid is very confusing. Right, and then you grow up as a Black man in America and you realize, oh, wow, like, you know, the police are not just the folks who, like, I don't know what they do in white neighborhoods. I don't know what police do there, but I know that in my neighborhoods or the neighborhoods that I've lived in that have been predominantly Black, police stop you and accuse you of having drugs and weapons on you. They fondle you in front of people. You know, they try to embarrass you and tell you to line up on this wall for spitting off the subway tracks when they don't even know if you have a cold or something like that. And they're ready to run your entire criminal record in front of people and stuff. You know, they, 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 they occupy the subway station with auto, with semi-automatic weapons and, you know, put lights in your face as you're trying to walk home, you know, like, is every police officer like this? It really doesn't matter. Like, you know, because, you know, the whole slogan right now, um, all cops are bastards, it's going right. Around, around right now. And I don't really even talk about what individual people who wear the shirt and the badge are like, because at the end of the day, if you go Okay, if you get hired at Starbucks, right, Mm -hmm. you don't have any choice but to make coffee there. Like you. Right, that's just what you do. That's your job. Whether you are an avid coffee drinker or not, that's not what you're getting paid to do. You're also not getting paid to, um, you know, tell anybody about how much you love you know, making donuts and how donuts are much better. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like no one cares. Like you get hired to do a job. And the same thing, like the thing that's wrong with our criminal justice systems in America is not just the individual people working in them. It's the type of work that they're being asked to do, you know. Right. So there's or a re- very important people doing that work. Exactly. There's a very important book called Chokehold by Paul Butler, a legal scholar that talks about this stuff. And he he said he wrote of his experience as a prosecutor that police departments violate the, the rights of black people as policy, many of them. And, yep. <laughs> you know, that's the thing that we need to think about is like we know that we know that, or we consider it normal that the police kill civilians. Yeah, and that is deeply, to my friends from other countries, that is, and for good reason, it's extremely deeply unsettling. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's something that we consider normal here. In fact, to the point where we have right now officers that are walking off the job because people are saying they shouldn't kill people so much. So they're essentially saying, listen, either we get to, either we get to, you know, brutalize people or we walk. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I think you can walk. If your view is like, (laughs) I'd like to brutalize people more like good riddance, maybe go do something else. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and hearing your experience, I think that that is valuable because I mean, I never know who's going to listen to my podcast. It's a very exciting adventure. Um, But for people who did grow up in primarily white neighborhoods to hear that, because when you were talking about what police do in your neighborhood, I'm reflecting my last encounter with the West Hollywood Sheriff's Department was when they came to my door at about 1130 at night because a neighbor had erroneously reported that my television was on too loud. Mm. I don't own a television, so that was a confusing (laughs) turn of events, Um, and I was reading a book. Um, I don't think very loudly, Um, so I'm genuinely not sure who was more confused, like me or the two sheriffs who showed up at my door, and I'm like, that is such a different interaction, that that was my last interaction, is I was most alarmed that someone was knocking on my door, but also knew, like, that were I to open the door, and it was, in fact, the sheriff's department, to have that knowledge that like probably nothing would happen to me Hmm. and that that like that made my heart sink like even thinking about that even at the time that I was like you're being called here for a silly reason but if I were someone else that reason would not be silly Hmm. I think what comes up for me too as you say that is why do people call agents of the state that have guns on them to respond to someone playing their music too loud. 
Yeah. There are so many other solutions <laughs> to that. Can we just go knock on the door? Yeah. And, you know, hey. Hi. I'm your next door neighbor. <laughs> um, you think you could turn your TV down a little bit? Now, how many Black people have we heard of that have been killed because a neighbor called the police because of a noise complaint? Yes. And that's, yes, that's exactly. And it was in that moment, once I got over the initial moment of like, oh my God, there's someone at my door. Those were the things that I was thinking about as these two sheriffs were standing there looking just kind of confused and embarrassed. And I'm like, hey, you're the ones that showed up here. Like, I did not. <laughs> I didn't ask for this. <laughs> I'm like, this one's on you guys. <laughs> um, yeah. But like thinking about, you know, all the other things that could have happened because of this system that like, it's not serving me, it's not serving my neighbor, and it's literally killing people. Hmm. I'm like, this is, why is this happening? Hmm. Yeah, that is... Um... I think these are really good questions for people to be asking themselves, especially as we talk about public safety, you know, because like you said, like that could have gone a completely different way. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. But who do we call, right? If, okay, let's say that you do have a neighbor and they are always playing their music really loud all the time. And you have confronted them about it. You have talked to them, but they won't, right? Well, what do we do? you know yeah it's like what's the consequence for that like is there like a homeowners association is there like a board at your apartment complex where you all get right. together about like what do you want to happen in your apartment complex yeah there there have to be some alternative uh there have to be some other alternative mechanisms for resolving conflict because one thing that does not have to happen is that your neighbor should not be shot for the volume of their speakers, right? Like no. that should not happen. And once we once we invite people into this conflict resolution situation with guns on them, then we're also putting that on the table. Yeah. Yeah, like even having like an unarmed community force where it's like, okay, we've asked a few times, like maybe we need to have a third party to talk about like what's an appropriate TV volume. <laughs> like, <laughs> because that's not something you solve with guns. You can normally solve TV volumes very easily sans guns. Right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm glad that we had this conversation because now, you know, we can just send out a memo and get some things done around here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, we talked about it. All right. Exactly. Exactly. Here's and it, platform. here's, here we go. <laughs> and what you said about community organizing, where it's not about one person saying every TV has to be at five or below. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of problems that can be solved when you like talk and listen to people fancy that. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> Shocking new information. You heard it here first. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I guess in closing, like what's coming up for you so that people can look for more of your work? I know that you said that the podcast is coming. Yeah, it's coming in August. Um, I've got some new music coming soon. I'm not sure exactly when, but we're just about done with my next sing single. Awesome. And um, yeah, I think those are the big things. The podcast is coming and the new music, which hopefully there'll be a lot of new music. I have a lot of new songs, but I have not been, um, yeah, I've just been getting back into the studio. It's been a weird time to record, I say, with yet again, dramatic understatement. Yes, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's like, um, so I still work full time and all that. And so my time is pretty much occupied. But then, like, I get off of work and then I'm like, what I usually do when I get off of work is I just study. Like, I just read more about social change. But then I'm mm -hmm. like but I work on social change, so I can't just be doing this all the time. So I think I should mix this up and go to the studio. Yep. It's been a good escape in some ways. Music has been during this time when there's not really much else to do. Right. <laughs> like the lockdown is so real. 
So it's helpful to be able to like go to the studio and work on some music, but I get like, it still feels weird because it feels like it's the only activity outside of my apartment that I can do right now. <laughs> yes. Yes. And like my, my living room, like basically is my studio, hence why I don't have a television. Um, and so it, I don't know if you've experienced this, but sometimes it feels very weird to be like, okay, I'm finally like in the mode to make music and work on music and like, wait, am I still in the same space? What was I last doing in this room? Is this where I'm supposed to be making music? Do I get to relax? Question mark. Do I just curl up in a ball? <laughs> yes. Yes, so real. <sighs> Thank you so much again for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to this episode of Why Not Both. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. You can also come hang out with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, both on Instagram and on Twitter. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print, music, and entertainment magazine and website. You can find them at www.undertheradarmag.com and feel free to support them on Patreon. Extra special thanks to our producer, Laura Studeris, who is literally a rock star. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you next episode.